We are, just to recap our series uh, to this point, we're in Ecclesiastes and the series is called Under the Sun. And uh, the meaning of a system or a person, I don't know if you think about this this way, but a person is actually a type of a system. The meaning for that thing, that system or that person must be outside of it. It can't be intrinsic to it. It has to be outside of it. And we've continued to establish this point pretty consistently. Um, and understanding that helps us go a little deeper into Solomon's thinking in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, he's going to refer to God quite a bit. But when he does this, when Solomon does this, he is referring to largely a concept, not a person. Remember last week we talked about deism versus theism and that deism is the belief that there is a God, and he probably created everything, but then he set it in motion, and then he backed off, and he doesn't have anything to do with his creation. Theism is different. Theism is what we believe as Christians, that God created, and that he's also intimately involved with his creation. And so that's where we come from on this perspective. And as we look uh, at Ecclesiastes, you'll observe that uh, we've been through chapters 1 through 6, and they've been more existential They've been dealing with that angst and the dilemma of the the existentialist worldview. And by that, we mean uh, everything is driven by experience. You can only know things through your five senses. That's really existentialism. It's very very man-centered stuff, right? But you'll begin to see, I think, a subtle shift starting in chapter 7 towards a more thoughtful, philosophical bent in Solomon's writings. And this is crucial because what Solomon is laying out for us here is true advice, and there's actually some good wisdom here for living. And so I've said this before, there are going to be times when, when we, we're going to blow through a whole chapter of Ecclesiastes, and then there are other times when it's just too much to take the whole chapter, and so this is one of those weeks, it would be a disservice to the text to try to get through all of it, so we're going to, we're going to take half of it, okay? And we know that God wants us to grow into mature men and women as followers of Christ, so that he can use us for his redemptive purposes in the world. He wants to use us. He wants to utilize us to get the gospel to lost people. And for us, for you, for me, that means that should the Lord tarry, should he delay his returning, you need to be in a position, especially if you're 25 and under, to impart a Christian worldview and understanding of the Word of God and a right rendering of history to your children and their children because they are the ones who will have to rebuild civilization. This thing is is falling apart. Um, Our our civilization is crumbling all around us. Uh, Fortunately, as a student of Scripture, and especially a student of prophecy the last 23 years, I believe that we're living in a time that's seeing a convergence of the signs that the Bible clearly predicts indicating that we will see the return of Jesus for his church and that we will see him face to face when he takes us in the air to be with him. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 5. And we are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should come upon us like a thief. Amen? We see it coming. We long for it. And so as we long for that and we see it coming, we also live in the tension of planning for the next 200 years of civilization while we expect Jesus at any moment. That's the tension we're called to live in. And we acknowledge that living in the tension is hard, but that's what the passage, this passage is all about this morning is doing hard things. 
It's about doing hard things. So let's look uh, in Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. The preacher, or uh, we know that this is Solomon, talks to us about the value of difficult things over and above pleasant things. And it might seem to us that our lives are filled with difficult things, difficult people, difficult situations, difficult problems that are beyond our ability to control or solve. And when it's when our life is filled with difficulty uh, that we're more likely to actually come to God in humility and ask Him for help and end up in communion with Him. When, when things are going good and going well, what we tend to do in our flesh is take God for granted. And so the, the, the whole point, I think, of this section of Ecclesiastes is to remind us that even though in our flesh we don't like difficult things, we don't like hardship, it really is the way that, that brings us closer to the one true and living God. And that's a valuable experience. So, so let's look at Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, we're going to read 1 to 13 together. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity." Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. This is really great wisdom for living in this passage. And watch the Spirit of God take many of the things that our culture values and flip them upside down and, and show us what God values in contrast to that. So let's go back and look at verse 1. Um, so verse 1 is really how we smell matters. How we smell matters. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. So think about what's being represented by this concept of ointment and perfume. And it helps if you can go back to the time of Solomon. Israel as a nation in those early days of the monarchy. You had Saul and then David and now Solomon. And, and this is an arid place, right? This is, this is the time before deodorant, before Axe body spray, teenage dudes, right? So if you're going to cover, if you live in an arid culture, first of all, ointment's important because it helps put the moisture back into your skin. And then the other part is um, perfumes covered your body odor. Let's just call it your stank because that's, that's the truth, right? It's just you're stanky. Um, and and this, so this has to do with the, our image. This has to do with how people see us. And the smell of a person actually in Scripture is analogous to their reputation. Did you know that? It's hard to gain a good reputation 
and it's really easy to lose it. And God uses this metaphor in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, we see Paul say, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, listen to this, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. There's a, have you, ever, you ever been in, a, in your grandma's house when she just baked bread or baked a pie? And the smell, you come in from playing when you were little and you smell that and he's like, oh, oh. That's, that's the image here, right? We are the aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere we go. For we, as he says in verse 15, he says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one of those groups, we're a fragrance from death unto death, and to the other group, we're a fragrance from life unto life. And who's sufficient for these things? It's only by the power of the Spirit, right? So we're spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. And for some people that we interact with, that's the smell of death. They smell that and they go, I don't want that. That means laying down my rights and laying down my preferences and laying down my sin. I don't want that. It smells like death to me. And you go, yeah, it is. You have to die to your sin to be alive in Christ. And to the other people, it smells like life. They smell that and they go, wow, I want that. I want that. And so it's how we smell that matters. In God's economy, our name, our reputation is far more important than how we actually physically smell. But this is analogous, right? It's a metaphor. And then continuing verse 1, he says, In the day of death, then better than the day of birth. So who here likes to celebrate their birthday? Yeah, like that, yeah, most of us, most of us. Some of us are like, no, I don't. Uh, but, but think, so if you, if you love celebrating your birthday, you would not make a good Jehovah's Witness, by the way. I don't know if you know that they don't celebrate birthdays or holidays or anything, really, um, except coming to your door and knocking, and then they get really excited. <coughs> think about the favorite things you like to do on your birthday. Just think about that for a minute. All the ways you like to celebrate your birthday, and what are we actually celebrating when we do that? We're celebrating me. Celebrate me, right? It's all about me. Celebrate me. Let's get together so that we can memorialize an event that I have absolutely no say in and zero control over. Make, make much of me, right? I'm in the world now and I'm wonderful. And it's like, what? Uh, what you're saying is I managed to keep breathing air for 365 days. Way to go. Way to go. Happy birthday. And birthdays are really about the presents, aren't they? Or maybe that's autobiographical. I don't know. But, but here's how, this is how the culture tells us to gauge our lives. By what we get and what we have. That's how the culture says, this is how important you are. This is how valuable you are. Whether you're a cool kid or not cool kid, right? It's, a, it's about what we have. And, and so in contrast to that, the passage is telling us that a funeral would be better than a birthday. Which seems counterintuitive. But Scripture reminds us in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The life I live, Paul says, means labor for Christ. To die means to be with him. He says, I'm torn, yet I know that I'm going to remain for your sakes. But, but to, to die is gain. Death for us as Christ followers is the best, biggest, most incredible gain we, can, we can't imagine. 
We, we, I was going to say we could imagine, but we can't. We can't even imagine what that's going to be like. So for us as born-again Christ followers, death is gain. But there's this other facet here in this, in this saying, um, yes, you get memorialized to some extent um, at your death, even though you're not present. And have you ever stopped to think about what you would want people to say about your life at that event? I mean, think about it. When, you, when you're born, you're just screaming. There's nothing meaningful coming out of your mouth. You haven't even learned to spell. But at the day of your death, it's like people are going to talk about your life, who you were as a person, maybe what you accomplished in life. And, and, and you, want not, you don't want people to lie at your memorial uh, or, or to only say nice things, but things that would actually reflect your life as a person, right? So the challenge for us that's being given here is to live in such a way that would garner those kind of responses upon our demise. We want to live in a way where people would, would speak honorable things about our life on the day of our death and speak more to the kind of person we were who honored Christ and, and the life that we lived rather than the stuff we accumulated. That's not the conversation you want people to have at your funeral. Yeah, but he had a big boat. It's like, if that's, the, if that's the best thing they can say about you, you, you did not live well. Had a lot of stuff. We, I, I want people to say about me that I loved and honored the Lord Jesus Christ, that I was committed to the gospel at all costs. I want people to say of me on that day that, that they were loved by me, that, that, uh, that I honored them as a person. I, there, there are all these things I want to hear from heaven. If, if I could just get the telephone line all the way down. I, just, I, want to, I want to listen in, right? I want to listen in. It's a beautiful thing when a life is well lived. So, so w- what I'm asking you to ask yourself is if you walked out of here today and didn't make it home because of a drunk driver, what would people say about you? Which would you have more of? Friends or stuff? Relationships or achievements? And that's, that's the heart of this, right? Because death is the end of every person, and there's no avoiding it. You realize, of course, that you and I are part of the ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten people die. I hope that's not news. <laughs> Take it to heart. Consider this truth and learn. Be ready for death. Be ready to face this God that the preacher keeps talking about. Okay? Be ready. It says verse 2. We just, that was verse 1. I mean, goodness. I don't know. This may be 90 minutes today. Verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So it says, better to go to the house of mourning. Why would that be the case? Well, the house of feasting is a place of plenty where you have absolutely everything you want and everything you could need. How is the house of mourning better? Well, to get the answer, we have to consider what prosperity does to faith in God. Prosperity and wealth are far more dangerous to the, to the Christian faith than poverty. I would submit to you. And, and we've seen this in Ecclesiastes, and we see it in our culture. We see it in the health and wealth gospel. It's, it's dangerous to our faith. It makes everything regarding the Christian faith about me instead of about Jesus. 
It's, it's, a, it's a heresy that leads people astray. But it's not to say that you can't be a Christian and have wealth as a Christian, but it is to say there are some unique challenges set before you if you're going to seek to remain faithful to Jesus and relying upon the Holy Spirit. Because wealth is one of those things that will, will just very subtly and continuously corrupt and lead astray if we're not careful. And so in contrast to that, he says to go into the house of mourning is to keep the imminence of death before us. It's a reality that could come at any time. And so the result is an eternal perspective on our day-to-day activities. We're constantly thinking about, are we honoring the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we taking this opportunity to make the gospel known? Are we taking this opportunity to love this person in the name of Jesus and meet a need? That's, that's what that does to us. And it's not to say you can't do that if you have wealth. It just takes more effort. It takes more intentionality. And he says, <clears throat> this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. And that's, that's just the way of saying there's not a lot in life you can be 100% sure of, right? But we know, that we know one thing. At some point, that meat pump in your chest that runs on jelly donuts is going to stop pumping. It's going to stop. And you're going to step out of this world and into the next. And so it's essential that you wrestle with the truth about what's going to happen to you when that happens. Because that moment's going to come, and you need to know that it's settled in your heart. And I love, I love having these evangelistic conversations with people. What, one of the things I've done, one of the most powerful tools, I think, in evangelism is actually leaving a conversation on this, hanging on this point of, um, of eternity, having people think about eternity, because most of us, honestly, day to day, we don't think about it. We, we live like we're invincible. And so we, Jen and I were just taking um, some food to a, a church, planter, church planting couple in Cedro Woolley uh, last night and visited with them for just a few minutes. And as we're coming home, there, there had just been a wreck where somebody in a motor, motorcycle had either been run over by a pickup truck or had, had flown off his motorcycle and hit the truck and, and landed about 30 feet away. And, and we, that's just a traumatic thing to drive past and so we're praying as we're in traffic there going past and just thinking, at any moment. That, that guy on the motorcycle wasn't thinking, I think I'll probably have a wreck tonight when I go out. It just happens. It just happens. And so if you can have somebody thinking about eternity, thinking about eternal things, leave the conversation on that. Um, it would get past the immediacy of this life and their white chocolate double decaf coconut milk mocha. And again, autobiographical, right? If you, can get, if you get people past that, I, one of the things I did, and I recommend this, if you, if you are a business person and you have business cards, I have mine printed and I always go through a printer where I can print on the back of the business card. And what I put on the back of the business card is, um, please fill in the date and time of your death. And when you get close to this event, please contact me so we can talk about eternity. And the two little blanks there is date, time. And it's so funny because you have this conversation with somebody and then at the end of the conversation, you, you know, you pull out your card and say, hey, listen, I'd love to get, I'd love to buy you lunch next week or get coffee. Can we continue this conversation? And this is what they do. They take the card and they look at it. And then everybody flips it over just to see if there's anything on the back. And I'm just standing there trying not to giggle, right? <laughs> I just like, because I know what's coming. And then, and then they, they read the back and they look up, and they look back down, and they look up with this confused, quizzical look, 
And then they say something like this. I can't fill this out. I don't know when I'm going to die. And you know what I say? That's exactly right. You could leave this encounter right now. You could walk across the street, be hit by a bus. You could lay down tonight in your bed and not wake up again in the morning. You don't know when that event is going to happen to you. So you really owe it to yourself to find out what's true about eternity. Don't put it off. And I'm leaving them thinking about eternity. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. He's saying sadness of face is good for the heart. There are things that God shows us through sorrow that teach us so much more than laughter ever can. And wise people accept the fact that we live in a fallen world where man is rebellious and sin is rampant, and this world includes tears and grief. And there's something really unhealthy about people who never cry and who never let themselves feel and express the emotions related to pain and grief. In fact, when you stuff that stuff down, it gets really unhealthy. And there's something, about the, something really sad about people who think they always have to try and joke and lighten the mood in every uncomfortable situation. Because there's a deep healing and a, and a peace that only comes through embracing sorrow and sadness in appropriate times and in appropriate ways. That's healing to us. Because the, other, the only other option is you just shut down your emotions. People don't realize that when they do that, they're trying to shut down just the negative emotions, but your, your emotions run on a circuit board that's an on or off switch. You don't, you don't have an individual switch for every emotion. If you try to shut down negative emotions, you'll shut down all emotions. And people don't realize that. And so this is what, what the, the verse is saying is... Um, Sadness of face, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad because, because you, have to have, you have to experience the whole range of emotions in order to have your emotions. And so that leads us right into the next verse, verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So the fool turns on the television to watch sitcoms to distract himself from the pains of life. The fool gets lost in endless hours and sleepless nights filled with video games, looking for some victory over virtual enemies uh, and, and the escape that comes from this world while, abdicate, while abdicating their responsibilities and the call to fight real battles in the real world. That's, that's what Scripture says. That's foolish. The fool gets into escapism, romance novels, romantic comedies, strip clubs, pornography, hitting up, toking out, drinking themselves stupid. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a distraction. And all in an effort to alleviate the loneliness and alleviate the pain, if only for just one moment. Scripture says that person's a fool. Ecclesiastes says the fool leaves his loved one's funeral and goes and gets drunk and parties to forget the pain. And maybe you're starting to get the point, right? Running from hardship, running from pain is foolish in God's estimation. We shouldn't do it. Trying to numb ourselves is foolish in God's estimation because pain is God's megaphone to get our attention. He wants to get our attention. I was thinking about this this week. I've just recently begun to talk to my sister. My sister's two years younger than me, and we've only just begun to speak to each other via Facebook Messenger again in the last six months. And for a long time, she just don't have anything to do with me. And what happened, I'll give you the short version here. When she was 14 and I was 17, I was a senior in high school, uh, she was raped and got pregnant and 
had an abortion. And, and I didn't know any of this. I knew that she had an abortion, and I was really angry at her for doing that. But I had, I had no idea what had happened. No idea. And so we had this, this uh, separation of our lives for 30 years. And, and she did just misunderstandings, miscommunication. And just in the last six months, we began to talk again and work through some of this stuff, and it's been really great. It's been really hard because a lot of that stuff just came flooding back, right? And I remembered when we were having kids, when we, when we had uh, Noah and then Ethan, and our pregnancies got harder and harder, and then we lost our third son, Luke, at six months in the womb. And then when we had Abigail, it was incredibly stressful, but she was just God's miracle baby to us. But I was, so, I'm, so as I'm talking to my sister the last six months, I'm reliving all the fresh emotions of those experiences again. And, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Is something will happen and it triggers that and it all comes flooding back into your heart. And that's because you never dealt with it. And even, even when you deal with it in a healthy way, sometimes you'll have an experience that'll just take you back. It'll just take you back, right? And the proverbial saying is that time heals all wounds, but I would argue that time wounds all heals. Just give it enough time, you'll feel it again, especially if you haven't dealt with it in a godly way. There's a need for deep wounds to remain stinted open so that they can heal, Right? If it's a really deep wound, you don't just sew it up and patch the person up and say, okay, go on with your life, because then they're going to get sepsis and gangrene and they're going to die. There's a need to stint a wound open and deal with it. And my life is deeper because of my pain. The pain that I've experienced in my life makes me a better pastor, a better minister to others because, I've, because of what I've experienced. I wouldn't trade that. I wouldn't trade that. If your heart is in the house of mourning, if you consider the end of your life and let that sober reality sink in and then act upon that reality, then you're in good company. Because those thoughts are the exact ones that wise men and women have in contrast to the fool. It's wise for you to consider your ending and then act based on what you've learned about yourself. On the other hand, the fool won't go there. The fool doesn't want to consider death. He'd rather be in the house of mirth. He'd rather just enjoy life and forget about the reality of death. But whether he faces that reality now, voluntarily, or not, he's still eventually going to meet his end. And he's going to be completely unprepared to stand before the creator of all things. Verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Songs are great. I mean, I was a music major. Who doesn't love music? But at the same time, I mean, how many of you say, I just love rebuke. I just, I just get so excited about being admonished by people, right? No, no one. But we would do better to listen to the difficult rebuke of wise people than to listen to the pleasant song of fools. The fool song is something fleeting. It's going to vanish in the light of eternity. That laughter and all that mirth enjoyed by the fool, Scripture says it's vanity, it's fleeting. That person's going to be unprepared for, for what's to come. And, and maybe you're here this morning, I don't, I don't know, maybe you're feeling that slap in the face, maybe you're feeling rebuked this morning, maybe that's not a bad thing. Because even though we're, we're conditioned in our culture to despise and avoid pain and discomfort and we don't like rebuke, maybe, maybe that's not God's way. Maybe he does that to us for a reason. Maybe he allows that to get our attention. 
Sometimes, sometimes God rebukes his children whom he loves. And sometimes we need to rebuke each other for the same reason. Um, I'll tell you another quick story about a rebuke in my life. You guys will love this. If you've not heard this story already, I was a senior in college finishing my music degree. And um, if you had asked me if I was a believer, I would say, yeah, I go to church every Sunday. And I was the president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in my high school. And I don't sleep around like the guys on the team. And I don't do all that stuff like they do. And it was just this comparative morality, right? Because I'd grown up in church and I thought I understood it. And my senior years when God wrecked my life, tore down my idols, and I came to Christ. But one of, the, one of the things that got me there was three girls in the music department, all sopranos, all beautiful, came to me at the same time and said, we'd like to go to lunch with you. Now, my ego was already overinflated. So it didn't take much for me to convince myself that they figured out some way to like all date me. They must want to go to lunch and talk about this arrangement whereby I just one week I have I date this girl, one week I it was just totally my mind was just in enveloped in self aggrandizement. It was crazy. So we get to the restaurant and they pick the corner table in the back corner of the restaurant. They asked the waiter, Can we sit back there? And I thought, Oh, they want it to be a little more private so we can talk. And then they put me in the corner and they sat around me and like locked me into place. And I'm still oblivious. I'm still. And, and so, so the waiter came, brought some water. They said, we're, we're going to take a few minutes. In other words, like, don't come back to the table. And they blew me up. They said, you know what? We, we're, we're desperate for Christian leadership in the music department. There aren't a lot of Christians anyway. And you call yourself a Christian, but you don't lead. You don't act like a, a brother in Christ. You, you, you don't act any different than any of the other pagans here in the department. They began to just blow me up. It was, it was shocking, right? Because I had already decided what was happening, and not only was that not happening, <laughs> I'm getting blown up. It was hard. My, my fragile little ego shattered into a million pieces. And what you do in that moment when you've, when you've built that kind of facade is you don't get humble, you get angry right? How dare they not want to date me? How dare they, right? <laughs> it's just delirium, man. How dare they say true things to me about me? And it took me a while to kind of calm down. I'm talking about like weeks to, to come down off of that, but that was a pivotal moment that God used to wake me up. It, it took probably four or five more things over the course of six months to really get my attention. But he did that because he loves me. He was going to let me have some pain to get my attention. That incident hurt my pride incredibly. But that was a good thing. And it was most assuredly for my good. And I had a choice to either let my flesh rise up in defiance or defense or to let humility rule the day. And in the moment, I didn't choose humility. I chose, I chose anger and frustration. But 1 Peter 5.5 5 and James 4.6 both say this exact same wording. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes those who are proud, who justify themselves and justify their sin, and he gives grace to people who humble themselves and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I did wrong. I don't know, I don't know how to do anything different. Help. He gives grace to those people. 
And by God's grace, eventually I did humble myself, and I did let God's grace change my heart through what had been said to me in rebuke. And, and you all need to know that as a pastor, I want you to know I watch you, and I watch your responses to this as well. And it tells me about a lot about where, where people's hearts are and how, how people respond to correction and rebuke. And so our call from God is not to seek out people who are going to make us feel better about ourselves, make us feel comfortable about our sin, but to seek out people who will speak the truth to us in love. Because that's what God does. He says the truth to us because he loves us. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They just want to hear what their itching ears long to hear. And so they will accumulate to themselves teachers who suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. And don't we see that happening? I don't want that to happen to any of us. I don't want that for you. You can easily find people who will tell you whatever your itching ears long to hear. This is a place where the truth is spoken in love by God's grace. And then verse 6, for the crackling of thorns, uh, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so was the laughter of the fools. This is also a vanity. So uh, picture yourself at a campfire, a bonfire, you're at the beach on a summer night, you got to get a little bonfire going. And there's a, by the way, there's an art to building a really good fire. Um, And you get it started and you get that fire burning hot and then you throw some evergreen branches on the fire. What happens? Lots of popping, lots of smoke, lots of light, very little heat. Same thing with bramble, thorns, dried out blackberry vines. You get a lot of, lot of popping, a lot of noise, a lot of smoke, not a lot of heat. The thing about a, the purpose of a fire is, is you want heat, not lots of smoke, not lots of noise. And so this is, this is the point, because the, the fool will talk a lot, and make a lot of noise, but they can't give you what you actually need. Proverbs 26, 7 says, The wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy will multiply kisses. An enemy will tell you what you want to hear. They'll kiss up to you. But a friend will wound you in love. A friend will wound you in love. That's my wife's life burst. I had no idea when we got married. can't tell you how many times she has cut me deeply in the name of Jesus. And it was necessary. And I bled for a while. And then I got better. And God healed my heart. One of the wisest things you can do is surround yourself with people who will be honest with you. It might not feel good at all times, but it's good for you. If those who only ever agree with you and only ever say the things that you want to hear, those are people who don't actually love you. They only love themselves. Scripture says they are your enemy. And your call is not to surround yourself with yes men, but to surround yourself with honest people and to be an honest person and to speak the truth to those around you in gospel community. I actually think that can be the harder thing for most of us is to actually say what's true instead of receive what's true. That's hard. Receiving the truth about ourselves is hard. Speaking the truth in love to others, I think that's harder in our culture in some ways. But we have to do it. We have to do it. He says, verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. And so this is just uh, Solomon saying that oppression and injustice never cease until Jesus comes to rule and reign. It will always be with us. 
Those who love what is good are continually frustrated by the oppression and immorality that they see in the world around them. And if it weren't for the promise of the coming kingdom, uh, it would drive us into madness. But we know that justice is coming. Verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So uh, the beginning of something is always more exciting and hopeful, but what's in view is that the value of the end of that thing is better and higher. And the second part of the verse holds the key to understanding this. You need to be patient and accept this because it's hard to wait for the end of a matter. The beginning of the thing is right there, right? The immediacy, and, and, and you don't have to wait for it, but waiting for the end takes patience and practice, and that's a good thing. It develops character, right? And that's what God wants for us. And then verse 9, we'll, we'll keep moving quickly here. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So it's like saying, be patient, or uh, to quote Treebeard, don't be hasty, Master Marriott. Right? Lord of the Rings, anybody, please? <laughs> Praise God for you people. Um, don't be quick to anger. Don't be quick to anger. James 1 says this. He says, Know this, my, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. He says, So put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See this contrast? Like humility and, and, and um, anger, being quick to anger and being, being fill, filled with yourself, right? It's everywhere in the scriptures. It's everywhere. And then verse 10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. And now he's talking about nostalgia, right? Nostalgia. We look back. Um, th- those were better days, and, and that's actually probably true at this moment in time. Um, but yes, look back with gratitude, but don't look back so much with longing that you cease to engage right here and right now. There's a stewardship that God has entrusted to you, regardless of the times, regardless of the difficulties. Don't look back with longing so, so much that you fail to engage in this moment. It's not wise for you to say, why were the older days better than what I have now? And this admonition aligns well with what we've seen so far in the text. Hard and difficult things are good for us. They are good for us. They're ultimately much better for our character and for our souls than easy things and pleasant things. They sober us up. They get us searching for God in the midst of difficulty. And if you will let them, they will shape your character for good and towards godliness. And so 11, 12, and 13 here, and we'll wrap up the text. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So he's just saying both wisdom and money offer some protection in various ways, but money can't save your life, whereas wisdom has the potential to do that if wisdom leads you to Jesus Christ. And then consider the work of God, verse 13, who can make straight what he has made crooked? So this is just the way that God has set this up. This is a result of the fall. Sin has wrecked the world for us. Sin has made it difficult to live our lives in ways uh, that, that it might not have otherwise, otherwise been difficult for us if we, if we hadn't fallen into sin. 
And we just have to deal with what is, not what could have been. We can't sit around going, well, I just wish the world was different. I wish Adam had never sinned. It's like, get over it, move on. You can't change that. We have to deal with life. And what is difficult at times and what we have to decide is to face it head on instead of running away from it. We have to decide we're just going to move forward by the grace of God. We're going to move forward in the power of the Spirit. Even when things are hard, even when it doesn't feel good, we're going to trust the Lord and we're going to keep going forward with the Lord. I had a moment Friday evening. I was working on this sermon and, and I was thinking about the title and I found myself wanting to change the title of the sermon from Do Hard Things to Suck It Up, Buttercup. <laughs> I mean, that's really what the sermon's about. A life of ease seldom leads to gratitude. A life of comfort and ease usually actually leads to ingratitude and a sense of entitlement, which is dangerous to our souls. So the value of hardship and difficulty is what it moves us towards. It moves us towards what really matters in this life and what really matters for eternity. And so when we do hard things, when we do hard things, we're rejecting the path of least resistance. So it, it's just so funny because I, this default mentality in the church is like, well, we just drift towards holiness. Like I'm going to go home, put my Bible on my face and go to bed and by osmosis, I'm going to wake up holy. It takes quite a bit of effort to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes decision-making that says no to the pleasures of this world at times for the sake of becoming more Christ-like. It's a life that, that seldom, uh, a life of ease seldom leads to gratitude, right? That comfort and that ease. And so the value of this is that it, it makes us uh, double down and actually engage in the pursuit of Jesus. Hardship brings uh, this, this move towards Christ-likeness Christ far more than ease does for us. And so doing hard things develops character more than a life of ease. Like keeping your word when it's difficult. You said you'd follow through on this thing, and now something came up that you'd rather do, or, 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 it's, or it's, it's raining outside and it's dark by 2.30 p.m., and you're just like, I just want to hibernate. And you don't want to do it. It's like, okay, do, do hard things. Do hard things. Be a man or woman of your word. Follow through on your promise. It's called integrity. And there's already too little of it in our world at this moment. For that to be infiltrating the church, we need to be people of integrity. Do hard things. Doing hard things moves us towards Christ's likeness more than almost anything else in this life. It's about becoming a man or woman of godly character. It's about who we are on the inside. We want to be people marked by grit. Like I just haven't heard people talk about grit. It's like so many people in our culture just don't have grit anymore. It's like, yeah, this is hard, but, man, we're going we're gonna to get through it. We're just going to press in. And that's not our culture. Our culture's like, no, I just want to escape from this at all costs. And to the, if you're a teenager in the room or a preteen, can I just say to you this morning, rebellion is not a rite of passage. It's not something that you have to go through to become an adult. If you must rebel, rebel against the status quo and the cultural expectations and pursue hard things. Do hard things, teenagers. This is the heart of humanity lies a desire to be great. There's this desire in us 
for praise, to receive praise. And regarding this innate desire for praise, you only have two variables. You only have two choices to make about receiving praise as a human being. You get to choose the source of your praise and you get to choose the timing of your praise. The heart of doing hard things is ultimately about the source and timing of our praise. It is choosing to seek praise from God rather than man. That's the source. I'm going to choose to seek praise from the God of heaven and not from man. And I'm going to choose to delay my praise. And instead of receiving it now, I want to wait to hear it from God when I stand before him. It's it's two choices. Where's the praise coming from and when do I receive it? Those two choices make all the difference in the life that you live. Delayed praise from God, not from man. And we're all in process on this. We're all in process. We give grace to each other. If you've trusted Christ for salvation, there's no condemnation for you. There's a grace to grow and to learn and to heal and to move forward as we do hard things together. And if all we ever did as individuals turned to gold, how would we ever learn from our failures? We fail. We fail. If we never experience pain or hardship or really blow it in a relationship, how would we ever learn to humble ourselves and apologize and ask for forgiveness and rely upon the Spirit. If every relationship was perfect, where would be the impetus for us to grow in our own character and maturity? Like, Do hard things. Choose hard things. This is a place where you can lay down your good in exchange for God's best. Emmaus Road is a place where you can put aside your pride and the need to defend yourself and in humility own your sin and trust God to deal with with the sins of others who've wounded you. That's that's what we're trying to build here. That's what this is about. It's a place to put down your plans and put down your ideas, put down our aspirations and our grand designs and dreams and simply come before the God who made us and ask him, what would you have me do, Lord? We're, We're trading out our agenda for his agenda. We're aligning ourselves with the God of heaven. We want your praise, Lord, at the right time. And what we're saying is we're not going to settle for anything less. Amen? We want the praise of God, not man. We want the praise when we stand before him, not now. And that makes all the difference as we do hard things. Let's pray. Lord God, we we mean that. We say to you right now that we mean that. There's apprehension in our hearts because we know what it might entail. We know that there's pain involved and there's hardship involved. And we just, we, again, we're just honest before you. We don't like that. We, we don't enjoy that. But we acknowledge that it's the better path. It's the better thing. And so, Lord, we ask you for the grace of your Holy Spirit to be with us and in us, to fill us and empower us, that we might do hard things. In the name of Jesus and for the glory of your name, we ask Amen. Mm, Lord Jesus, we just give you praise, honor. Lord, we sacrifice our will, our self-determination on the altar, and we ask that you would lead us and guide us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when we do hard things, what we're doing is rejecting the path of least resistance. We're developing godly character. 
And that moves us towards Christ-likeness more than anything else in this life. Scriptures call us to be men and women of godly character marked by grit. And if you absolutely have to rebel, then rebel against the status quo. Rebel against the cultural expectations and do hard things. May the Spirit go with you and encourage you and empower you to receive the praise of God at the proper time as you do hard things for the kingdom of God. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.